Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature presidential stem cells and dark aliens. But first up, here's the news. Mad cows come unstuck. Prions are the proteins implicated in Kritzoff-Jakob disease in humans and bovine spongiform encephalopathy, or mad cow disease, in cows and scrapie in sheep. Proteins are folded into particular shapes for their function. In prion diseases, the proteins have been refolded into new shapes. Prions refolded by disease have the ability to replicate by imprinting their abnormal shape onto healthy prion proteins spreading the disease. The mystery has been, what do these prion proteins do when they're not being recruited by disease? Why do messed up prions make cows mad? The answer seems to be that healthy prions work like glue, at least in zebrafish. The researchers at the University of Konstanz in Germany use zebrafish as their model. Zebrafish are a handy model because not only are they quick to grow, but they're also transparent and easy to study during embryonic development so you can see processes going on in the living fish quite easily. They micro-injected zebrafish eggs with morpholinos, DNA-like molecules that prevent the normal production of prion proteins. They found that the treated zebrafish embryos were unable to develop normally, and eventually died. The proteins in the fish embryos normally found in... The proteins in the fish embryos normally found at cell-to-cell contact sites disappeared, rendering these cells unable to communicate and carry out the specialisation of cells that shapes the major structures of the body, including the nervous system. They were able to show that the prion protein serves as a glue element, bringing cells together and keeping them in contact so they can communicate. It's too early to know how the results apply to humans, but it's suspected that prions play a role in Alzheimer's disease. A special thanks to paper author Edward Malaga-Trillo, Assistant Professor of Developmental Neurobiology, at the University of Konstanz, for bringing this story to my attention. The perfect crime. From a jewel heist in Germany, the only evidence was video of three masked suspects and DNA on a glove left behind. They profiled the DNA, matched it in the police database, and pulled in their two suspects, identical twin brothers. The problem is that German law requires individual evidence for individual suspects. The DNA suggests that either or both brothers could have been at the scene of the crime, but it's not enough. Both twin brothers have a criminal record, which is how their DNA came to be archived by the police. Of course, it's possible to interpret the evidence to say that neither brother was at the scene or touched the glove. The DNA could have been planted by the real criminals, or it could have innocently been transferred some other way. Deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA, is found in all cells except red blood cells. DNA is said by some to be unique to all but identical twins, but there's no scientific proof of such uniqueness. 
DNA can be extracted from a few cells from the sort of things regularly left at crime scenes, such as traces of skin, blood, sweat, or other bodily fluids. Every cell nucleus contains 23 pairs of chromosomes, except, except for sperm and egg cells, which have only 23 single chromosomes that pair up at conception. Each chromosome is made up of genes and spaces between them known as introns. These are made up of a series of bases adenine, thymine, guanine and cysticine, which are depicted by the letters A, G, T and C. By locating a predetermined point on a gene and measuring how many times a sequence of bases, say ACTG, ACTG, occur, a DNA profile is obtained. Because they don't break down as quickly, the shorter sequences are used. These are known as short tandem repeats. Where a close relative could be a suspect, or where the suspect or suspects come from a genetically isolated population like, say, Saddam Hussein's home village, many of the assumptions on which the mathematical calculation of a probable match don't apply. Close relatives are more likely to have the same profile as a suspect than the randomly selected person used as a basis of match probability calculation. If a brother cannot be excluded specifically, and may have been involved, then the chances of a match must be very low. If they come from a smaller genetically isolated group, the figures must again be very reduced. Due to a lack of further evidence, the brothers have been released. Neither the third suspect nor the jewels have been found. We never did find out what happened to all those body doubles Saddam employed from his home village. Crime writers have suggested a wilier way to defeat DNA forensics. They suggest that if you ride a city bus at the end of the day with a pocket vacuum cleaner and hoover up the back seat, you should collect hundreds of DNA samples. If you contaminate the crime scene with bags of the stuff, there's nowhere to tell who was really there. CSR are selling a low glycemic index sugar called Logic Cane in supermarkets as wholemeal sugar. The glycemic index, or GI of a food, describes how fast your body can turn it into blood glucose. Diets with low GI foods can improve the health of people with diabetes and is promised to lower the risk of developing diabetes. Diabetes is an illness where the body's sugar-controlling hormone insulin isn't as effective as in healthy people or the pancreas doesn't make enough. When blood glucose levels get too high, there's tissue damage. Diabetes can lead to problems with eyesight, kidney function, nerves and circulation. Type 1 is developed in childhood and type 2 is developed in adulthood. White sugar has a GI of 65 and is considered an intermediate-level GI food. The new Logicane wholemeal sugar is refined to keep more of the plant's original chemicals in the sugar so that your body absorbs it much, much more slowly, with a GI of 50. Any food below a GI of 55 is considered a low GI food. Low GI is only a part of the healthy eating plan for people with diabetes, but research does show that a low GI diet can improve the well-being of people suffering both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Logicane was invented by Dr Barry Kitchen and Dr David Kanar, who say it has the same taste and texture as regular white sugar. The plant chemicals left in the sugar from the new refinement process not only slow down the body's digestion of the sugar, but also work as antioxidants. Unlike Alestra, the weight loss oil replacement, wholemeal sugar does not suffer from anal leakage problems. The company says that in a 12-week study, obese mice not only lost huge amounts of weight, but their lean body mass increased, which may mean more muscles. The parent company Horizon is also responsible for Australia's first commercial cocoa crop and plans to make low GI chocolate available soon. 
Mawson Karim will explore the tiny world of embryonic stem cells and the big debate these cells seem to generate. On his 49th day in office, US President Barack Obama signed an executive order that overturned the Bush-era ban on federal funding for embryonic stem cell research. This act was praised by stem cell researchers who have argued that the restriction of funds have hampered efforts to find cures for many devastating diseases. Obama did warn that his decision will not open the doors to human cloning, which he believes is profoundly wrong and has no place in our society. So let's take a step back and consider the science behind the stem cell debate. By knowing how these cells are obtained, we'll be in a better position to argue the merits of stem cell use. So let's start at the very beginning, when a sperm meets an egg, forming a single cell. For the next nine months, the cell will grow and divide into more cells, and eventually lead to a crying newborn. The DNA inside provides the blueprints for this to occur, treating the cell like a factory to produce building blocks such as proteins that are needed to make more cells. The single cell splits into two. Hours later, there are four, then eight, then 16. The embryo continues to grow by increasing its cell numbers. Around the fifth day, the embryo forms a hallowed ball structure called the blastocyst, made up of about 140 cells. The inside of the blastocyst holds a group of cells called the inner cell mass. The embryonic stem cells are found in this mass. Around the 16th day of our early development, a monumental event occurs. The growing embryo undergoes gastrulation, a process that forms three layers. Each layer will give rise to different parts of the body. One layer forms the skin and the neural system, another generates the blood, bone, muscle, cartilage and fat, and the last contributes tissues of the respiratory and digestive tracts. So as the embryo develops, cells are given specialised roles. Some will become brain cells, others turn to skin, heart, liver, muscle, and so on. The beauty of embryonic stem cells is that they can form any of these specialised tissues. However, once a stem cell becomes specialised, the ability to act like a stem cell is lost. Generally, it's a one-way direction from embryonic stem cell to a specialised cell. Embryos can be grown up to the blastocyst stage in a laboratory. The outer layers of the blastocyst are peeled away to access the inner cell mass made up of embryonic stem cells. These cells are cultured onto a dish. Culturing means laying down the cells onto a surface so that they can grow. The aim is to keep the cells alive and have them multiply. Some of these cultured embryonic stem cells will be driven down the path of specialization, losing their unique properties. The desired embryonic stem cells are separated from the rest and grown to a pure population. In this way, a stock of embryonic stem cells can be frozen and stored for later. Such populations, or lines of stem cells, are shared by laboratories. Now I skipped over a few of the details, but the main thing to note is that the method to get embryonic stem cells involves destroying the embryo. As I said, the outer layers of the blastocyst are peeled away, and the cells of the inner cell mass are cultured. Opponents of stem cell research cannot support this practice because the blastocyst, a potential developing embryo, is destroyed. Once the stock of embryonic stem cells are thawed and recultured, they can be driven to grow into desired specialised cell types. This is achieved by adding ingredients called growth factors. A certain combination of growth factors and conditions will give rise to brain cells. Another can form cartilage, and so on. Because these cells can be driven to any cell type, the hope is that they can be used for specific tissue repair. 
For instance, it's hoped that the addition of embryonic stem cells to a patient with spinal cord injury could bridge the gap of damage, regrowing the tissues and connections needed for the spinal cord to function so movement can be restored. How do scientists get the embryonic stem cells in the first place? One will need access to embryos from in vitro fertilization programs. Multiple fertilized eggs are transferred to the patient's uterus to increase the chances of pregnancy. The excess embryos that won't be used for a pregnancy are stored frozen. In 1997, the most famous sheep in the world was born. Dolly was the product of fusing an egg with DNA that came from an adult sheep. This DNA came from a mammary cell. Like most of our cells, the mammary cell was specialized and could not form any other cell type. However, Dolly's birth showed that DNA from an adult specialized cell could be reprogrammed back into an embryo. Not only did Dolly's creator show that specialized cells could be instructed to give rise to different cell types, they had cloned a sheep. Now, cloning sheep may not sound so spectacular because they tend to look alike, but let's examine the potential human cloning applications. Since it will really annoy him, how about we clone George W. Bush? Using resources in my shiny new government-funded lab, I removed the DNA from a donated human egg. I now need some of Bush's DNA, say from a skin cell. I gently remove his skin cell DNA and insert it into an empty egg. I'll wait a few days for the egg to divide, then via IVF techniques implant the early embryo into a willing recipient. The resulting baby will be born with Bush's DNA, but will be many years younger than the current one. This process is called reproductive cloning. Let's look at this scenario again. However, instead of implanting the embryo into a woman, I'll let it divide in a dish until it reaches the blastocyst stage. At this point, the cell with Bush's DNA has divided into about 140 cells. What if I was to culture the cells of the inner cell mass? I would have access to embryonic stem cells with Bush's DNA. These tailor-made stem cells could be used to repair damaged tissues if needed. If George Bush seriously damaged the cartilage around his knee after an ill-thought golf swing, he could turn to this stock and potentially grow the cartilage back. This idea is referred to as therapeutic cloning, or somatic cell nuclear transfer. If I had decided to be a renegade scientist and let the cloned embryo grow to a full-term pregnancy, I would have created a human clone. But I did not let the embryo get that far ahead. That in itself is a concern, because I destroyed the chance of the clone's life in order to get the embryonic stem cells. Is it fair that this potential cloned life was created for therapeutic use? Does a clone have fewer rights than a regular embryo? Those for therapeutic cloning argue that in no way does the practice resemble reproductive cloning. Reproductive cloning requires a number of additional steps in order to get a cloned human. Cells created for therapeutic cloning will never be implanted into a woman and brought to term. So will Obama's decision ultimately lead to the development of cures for numerous diseases, or lay the groundwork for human cloning? Both camps will raise their points and will use science to defend their arguments. But I will leave you with President Obama's words on science and stem cells. When it comes to stem cell research, rather than furthering discovery, our government has forced what I believe is a false choice between sound science and moral values. In this case, I believe the two are not inconsistent. As a person of faith, I believe we are called to care for each other and work to ease human suffering. I believe we have been given the capacity and will to pursue this research, and the humanity and conscience to do so responsibly. That was Mohsen Karim and the stem cells that have been set free to change the world. Welcome to my secret lair on Skullcrusher Mountain. 
that you've enjoyed your stay so far I see you've met my assistant Scarface His appearance is quite disturbing I assure you he's harmless enough He's a sweetheart, calls me master And he has a way of finding pretty things And bringing them to me Oh, and I'm so into you But I'm way too smart for you Even my henchmen think I'm crazy I'm not surprised that you agree If you could find some way to be a little bit less afraid of me You'd see the voices that control me From inside my head Say I shouldn't kill you I made this half-pony, half-monkey monster to please you But I get the feeling that you don't like it What's with all the screaming? You like monkeys, you like ponies Maybe you don't like monsters so much Maybe I use too many monkeys Isn't it enough to know that I ruined a pony Making a gift for you Oh, and I'm so into you But I'm way too smart for you Even my henchmen think I'm crazy I'm not surprised that you agree If you could find some way To be a little bit less afraid of me You'd see the voices that control me From inside my head Say I shouldn't kill you Picture the two of us alone inside my golden submarine Well up above the waves my doomsday squad ignites the atmosphere And all the fools who live their foolish lives may find it quite explosive Well it won't mean half as much to me if I don't have Easy living here on Skullcrusher Mountain Maybe you could cut me just a little slack Would it kill you to be civil? I've been patient, I've been gracious And this mountain is covered with wolves Hear them howling, my hungry children Maybe you should stay and have another drink Think about me and you, oh I'm so into you But I'm way too smart for you Even my henchmen think I'm crazy I'm not surprised that you agree If you could find some way To be a little bit less afraid of me You'd see the voices that control me From inside my head Say I shouldn't kill you I shouldn't kill you, yeah. I shouldn't kill you, yeah. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SER.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. The Fermi Paradox, as espoused by Enrico Fermi, the Fermi Paradox suggests that as the universe is a habitable place, the Earth 
is able to support human life, there are probably other planets that can support life as well. So there should be aliens out there, there should be intelligent alien civilizations. And if they exist, we should be able to see some sign of them, because the universe has been around for billions and billions of years. So the question is, where are they? Now, there are lots of different answers to the Fermi Paradox. One suggested answer is that intelligent civilizations that can develop technology are very rare. One solution to the paradox is that technological civilizations are very rare. One alternative is that technological civilizations wipe themselves out very quickly, and so there's no sign of them when we look. A more interesting and optimistic perspective is that perhaps the aliens have become very advanced indeed. Freeman Dyson suggested that an advanced technological civilization could do a bit of planetary engineering where you get the spare planets in the solar system that you're not inhabiting, you collect all the matter together, and you create a shell of matter surrounding your sun, which will get all of the solar power, and you can then inhabit the inside of this shell and you'll have enormous amounts of living area, billions upon billions of Earths, all around the sun in the right spot. So you'll never run out of space for your population. And of course, from the outside, you would only see the waste heat that comes out of this sphere. Now, transhumanists have looked further, and they say, well, that's not really that advanced. We could do better than that. They're looking at computronium, which is where the matter has been produced to be the most efficient computer possible. It's a quantum computer, single atom computers. And so all of the matter in the solar system is turned into computronium. So it's a giant computer that forms a shell around the sun. It takes all of the solar power, does its computations as efficiently as possible, and then dumps waste heat out the back. And you might think, ah, we'd see the waste heat if they were doing this. But no, you build another shell outside that, and that shell of computronium runs its computations on the radiation from the inside shell. And you keep on doing that like a nest of Russian dolls. It's called a matrioska shell. And these matrioska shells most efficiently use up most of the radiation from the sun. They reuse it until the radiation that comes off is so weak, it's almost indetectable. So unless we knew exactly what we were looking for, we just wouldn't see them. So maybe the aliens are out there, but they're so advanced that there's no sign of them. So Mawson, what do you think? Well, so if an alien society has become technologically advanced, um, and yes, they're able to, in a sense, cloak themselves, um, I don't know, I think that if we'd become, at our level of advancement, we've sent out signals, we've overtly said, hey, we're here in the universe, we're friendly, Uh, wouldn't you think that another civilization would do something along the same lines? Well, it depends on what their interests are. I mean, you've got to realise that when you get pretty advanced, you're probably very reliant on networks, for example. Like, Mm -hmm. networking is becoming more and more important and the science of networking. So, as you move further away, if your whole civilization is based on concentric cells of computronium, Mm -hmm. um, the further you get away from them, the slower your signal. If your whole society is based on how fast you're connected to the network and how how up-to-date you are with the latest news then you won't want to travel very far because you'll be behind. You'll miss out. Sure. Um, I'm sure there'd still be some brave souls within that population that would, you know, be willing to venture out further. Um, That'd be individual explorers. Yeah. Which are harder to detect. True. They would have a very, very tiny signal. 
And I guess once that wherever they landed, it's not like they could just start up a new civilization as complex as the one they left behind. So it all depends on whether or not there's people pumping out radio signals the way we are, or whether or not that's something that civilizations only do for a very brief amount of time, mm-hmm. um, either because they go on to other things and other interests, or because they never get that far. Well, okay. Let's assume that there are um, a number of, of these advanced alien civilizations where they're at different stages of building this um, hidden cloak society. So, you know, by chance, wouldn't we detect some of these intermediate stages where some of those civilizations where they're kind of halfway... But the thing is, we've only had radio for 100 years. Mm-hmm. Like, out of and all of human civilization, all of human evolution, the whole time that humans have been on the planet, we've only had radio for the tiniest part of that. 100 years is not very long, mm. right? And we've only been putting radio out to the stars really since the 1940s, for the last 60 years, since radar was invented. So it's a little blink of our, it, you know, our society blink. that... Yeah, the chances are, whilst we're looking, we're just going to miss it. A little blink of 40 years or so, maybe through billions of years mm-hmm. that the galaxies and the universe has been around and, and will be around in the future. So maybe it's only a little blip. Or maybe they don't... Well, maybe there's some sort of censorship going on. <laughs> the Great Firewall of China, perhaps? <laughs> Perhaps. The, we've been filtered. Mm. Senator Conroy's Around the Universe have won. <laughs> and that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to contribute to Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. We also have a Facebook page, and many of us are on Twitter. Subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Mawson Karim. Contributing to the program was Mawson Karim. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SER Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
Kiss Chick.